From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. So, Michael, you are deeply embedded in the world of tech, and I suspect you will be very good at answering this question, actually a lot better than a lot of people. So who are the top female tech pioneers who've changed our world? Oh, wow. Well, I don't want to disappoint you here. I'm a little worried because there are a lot of them. Look, if you go back in history to the 19th century, Ada Lovelace is considered the first computer programmer. And speaking of programmers, you know, there was that book and the movie called Hidden Figures. It talked about some women, you know, their names were Mary Jackson, Catherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn. Their job title was actually computer. But then when electronic computers came to NASA, they were some of the first programmers. And speaking of NASA, Margaret Hamilton developed the onboard software for the Apollo program. Then, you know, there's the legendary Grace Hopper. She co-developed the computer language COBOL and the first compiler. And even in present day, you have computer scientists like Lee Fei-Fei, Joy Balamwini, and Deb Raji, and they're leading in research in topics such as artificial intelligence. But that's only a few. I'm sure I've missed many of them, but to be honest, we should have far more. And I do wonder how aware people are in general about the groundbreaking actually world-changing work that these women have done and are doing. And that's why I'm so excited to have talked to one of the liveliest women in tech today in our latest podcast. And she talks a lot about the history of women in tech. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Let's take a listen. Anne-Marie Imafadon is a mathematician, a technology whiz, an author and an advocate. She's often been described as a prodigy. She was only 11 when she got her A-level in computing, the youngest girl ever to pass that exam in Britain. And she was only 20 when she got her master's in maths and computer science from the University of Oxford. She worked for a number of investment banks, but then in 2013 set up STEMETS, an organisation championing girl and non-binary folk in STEM. In 2017, she was an award an MBE for our non-British listeners, that's a member of the Order of the British Empire, for services to young women and STEM sectors. In 2020, she was voted the most influential woman in tech in the UK by Computer Weekly. She has a fistful of honorary doctorates, an honorary fellowship at Keeble College, Oxford, and is a visiting professor at the University of Sunderland. And she's in her early 30s. Anne-Marie, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Janet. Hi, listeners. So listeners are always fascinated by how people forge the careers they do. And you tell a story in your forthcoming book, She's in Control. And by the way, control is like a keyboard control, which suggests that your journey started with Little Red Riding Hood. Tell us more. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a classic story, isn't it? Little Red Riding Hood. And for me, one of my earliest memories actually is playing on my dad's computer and, and you know play, playing as much as you could have <laughs> when, I, when I was four years old um, in Word and wanting to type the story of Little Red Riding Hood, but thinking purple's a better colour. I prefer purple and I think the story should centre on the colour purple instead of the colour red. And so typing, you know, Little Purple Riding Hood, it was probably gobbledygook, but I knew what I meant as I was typing it. Saving that in the computer, having to go to bed, as you do as a four-year-old, and then coming back the next day and being astounded, excited, proud, happy, you know, all the positive emotions you can think of, that my story of Little Purple Riding Hood was in that computer. And I think it's one of the things that 
you know, I still love about technology till today, the creativity that you can have, the things that you can evolve, you can shape, you can make that live on outside of you because of the repeatability, I guess, of that technology that, you know, if you dug out that computer, wherever it may be these days, probably not plugged in somewhere, you know, waited ages while you switched it on and while Word 3.0 loaded up, you'd see a glimpse of four-year-old Anne-Marie in that computer you know, living on through the gobbledygook version of Little Purple Riding Hood. <laughs> Excellent. So tell us a bit more about how you grew up, where you grew up and your family, because it seems to be a very high performing family from what I've read. This is it, all kinds of labels, all kinds of all kinds of titles. Um, but I grew up in East London. I'm, I'm very proud of that. I still live in East London now and I've always lived in East London. I am the eldest of five children. Uh, born to Nigerian parents here in the capital. And so for us growing up, you know, education is very, very important to Nigerians anyway. It's important to a lot of people. It's very important to Nigerians, a highly educated population. And for us at home, we were given a really positive, really I mean, you could call it progressive environment. And, it, and it's one of those things, you know, when you're, whatever you're going through in life, like what's your normal, you kind of don't, nobody really knows what normal is because you're living your version, right? And so I think in our house, the norm was, you know, with four girls and one boy. And so there wasn't really anything that was for boys because he turned up at the end. <laughs> and so in our house, it was like, try whatever it is, give whatever it is a go, as long as you're being honest and you're being good and you're not being destructive for you know destructive purposes in themselves and so we were really fortunate in that we were allowed to try a lot of things allowed to do a lot of things allowed to you know famously I say this all the time you know take apart the VCR player to understand where Timon and Pumbaa were coming from because how do you know how does it know you put one black rectangular object into another black rectangular object and Timon and Pumbaa show up on the third one where did they come from because I didn't put them in at the beginning. And so it meant that, you know, that exploration, that curiosity that was indulged for us at a very young age, um, grew into this love of learning, love of understanding. For me personally, it was about just understanding how things work. And if, you know, that logically follows on from that, logically follows on from that, I can learn it once and maybe apply it, you know, in, in across the two exams. But of course, me being the eldest of five, meant that the norms for the other children that came behind me, for my siblings, for my sisters, were, well, Amri did that and we're in the same place and that's normal for us, so why can't we do it? We grew up in the same place, came from the same place, you know, have the same have the same parents, have the same access to opportunities. So if I wanted to do the GCSEs younger, which is what my younger siblings did, some at seven, some at nine, which you'd normally do, I guess, for, for non-British uh, listeners, you'd normally do it at 16. I'd done it at 10. Someone else was like, they'll do it at nine. Someone else did it at seven. Pretty sure somebody did it at six. It was just the, well, why can't I? I mean, if she's doing it, what's, what's the difference between her and me? It just shows you the power of a role model and their role model was in the same family. I think it's definitely that. And, and it's so interesting that you say that because I think often we think of like a quite a distance, I guess, between us and role models and us and mentors. And I think you're right. It's a real good example of, you know, role modeling can happen anywhere. Everyone's got that sphere of influence. And so you don't have to be the big C-suite or the big exec, although I know a lot of listeners are. But, you know, there's a lot of role modeling that can happen that doesn't have to be all about traditional hierarchies or, you know, status and titles that people people have gained or have earned. Exactly. So um, your biography says that you won a scholarship to study maths at John Hopkins at the age of 13. Did you actually go to the US? I did. It was definitely a life-affirming moment. And it's something that I still yearn to be able to provide to 
young people that we work with now where it's just have the opportunity to go somewhere different, to do something different, to learn something different from what has been predefined and what the system does and system says. Because I am a real believer that, you know, with a lot of people, it's opportunity that they that they they need more than, you know, motivation or any of the other kind of things that we talk about that we ascribe success to. Being in that place at that time or having those environments to go and, you know, do the degree uh, content early or do a cyber certification early, which is what we do with the STEMETs, or Python certifications early, or Agile certifications early. So when you were in the States, I mean, I could only imagine that being young, gifted, black, and a woman might have been a bit difficult with maybe the more unenlightened. I mean, did you come across such attitudes? Because you've coined this great word, uh, misogynoir, which um, combines misogyny (laughs) and racism. (laughs) <laughs> you didn't, but I love it. I love it. But how much of that did you experience in the States or if not in the States subsequently? Because I I imagine that this has spurred you on. So actually, there's quite a lot of things in my experience that I can't say, oh, when I wasn't black, young and female, that happened. But now that I am black, young and female, here's how it's played out. And so there would have been lots of people who would have, you know, not believed I could do things, would have got in the way, sometimes might have ended up, you know, literally saying no to my face or saying that, you know, staring in disbelief that I just solved this database problem that they've been trying to work on for months and feeling like they're on, you know, a hidden camera show and having words with my manager. What do you think you're playing at? Why did you leave her in the room? You know, she'd made me look this way and I think it's one of those things that it's only when I'm then able to kind of almost compare notes with other people that have gone through very similar experiences and you almost need that bigger sample size right than one to be able to call something misogynoir to be able to note that something was was you know was based in racism or note that you know this is something that's happened happening systemically and isn't just happening to me and so I think it's something that I, I almost, it, it's, it's, <laughs> I, you can call it a luxury or not, but I, often it's kind of like, okay, cool. I can look back and say, huh, was that because I was black or because I was young or because I was a woman or because I was from East London or because, 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 or these are all things I cannot change or will not change, right? I'm, I can't change my race. I'm not changing my gender. My age is completely out of my control. And so what I actually have to do is say, okay, cool. If this person, for whatever reason, that's more about them than it is about me, doesn't believe that this is an opportunity for me or doesn't want to follow along or doesn't, you know, whatever it is, I'm working hard enough that I can go to the places where I can be celebrated and I can be heard rather than just ending up in, and, and, you know, clinging to places where I'm going to be tolerated. So I want to talk about STEMETs, but before I do, I also want to talk to you about Countdown. Now, it's a very big deal in the UK. For our non-UK listeners, it's the longest running quiz show, and it was such a high profile thing for Anne-Marie to do. So the mathematician or the arithmetician on the programme becomes a celebrity. And so Anne-Marie has attracted a lot of attention for this stint on Countdown. But on Twitter, there were people saying, oh, she only got that job because she's black. And I just wondered how uncomfortable that was for you. And maybe it was something new to you. No, no, no. Gosh, no. I mean, I've been black for more than 30 years. So no, not new. <laughs> and I think it's one of those things, you know, you, sometimes you do look back and you unpick and you're like, yeah, it was a little black girl that turned up and they really weren't expecting that. And so it's been it's been really interesting to kind of sit at the center of this and be like, yeah, y'all, I, I knew it was going to happen. I'm kind of not surprised it's going to happen. It normally happens in public, in private, sorry, rather than happening in public. I do a lot of things and I and I know what I do is important and I know that it's making a change, but to have it presented 
almost in argumentative fashion. How dare you? She did this and she did that and she's overqual you know, she should be prime minister and all these, all this kind of overwhelming avalanche of support, which, you know, when you reflect on the flip side, in private, that's something that may have happened to me, but I'm not the first, I'm not the only person that's black and female trying to get on in professional spaces and in the media and in all these other spaces. And not everybody gets those flowers. Not everybody gets that as a benefit, which is why I talk a lot about the privilege that I do have. It was very absurd. Absurd, but it but it is one of those things that sadly is a, is a, is a norm, is definitely a part of, of our current norm. So listen, I, I think we've got a flavour of you as a person, but now I really want to talk about STEMETS. This is the organisation you set up some years ago. Um, just tell us what STEMETS is about. So I set up STEMETS in 2013 and it's an organisation, our kind of mission, the, the way that we describe it is we're set up to engage, inform and connect girls, young women and non-binary young people with the STEM and the STEAM field. So STEM is science, technology, engineering, maths. STEAM is the the truer name, actually, the proper evolution of that term, which is the science, technology, engineering, arts and maths. And we're doing that by showcasing a diverse set of role models, which, you know, we've already kind of touched on a little bit. And so for us at Stemets, we're giving those opportunities to those young people to make an informed decision on their own relationship with the field of technology. And this is in, in that broadest sense of whether it's engineering, whether it's the mathematics, whether it's the computer science, whether it's the, any of the sciences, innovation, a lot of innovation at the moment. Most innovation, you know, is driven by steam and that idea of mixing the science and the technology and ev evolving things and getting very creative and solving problems using it. And it's something that when we look at media representations, when we talk about, when we look at the history of STEM, that misses quite a lot of the history of STEM that actually it's pretty tough if you're a girl, a young woman, non-binary person to look back on, you know, no offence at all to them, the dead white male scientists, the dead white male technologists who we overwhelmingly sold that story, sold this history, sold this narrative that if you're not dead white male with a beard, you can't contribute to these things. And it's quite frustrating for the girls and the young women and for those who maybe will end up being dead white male with beards, having to then understand that actually this isn't a space that's solely and purely about you. You're not the one definition of success. You're not the only type of value that we can have in this STEM and STEAM field. And so STEMETS is about, you know, doing what we can while young, while they're young to help form their ideas um, and give them um, a little bit of kind of staying power and slightly different motivators to enter into the field and stay in the field. And I think it's something where we have to, to lift out and have a bit more perspective and say, if this gen next generation is not involved, if they're not making technical decisions, if they're not considered, if they're not pushing to be there, and if they don't have this wider sense of, you know, the legacy we have that we need to all have, we need to embrace this technology while it's here so we don't end up with Terminator 2, Black Mirror, any of these dystopian views that we have of robots marrying our grandchildren or killing us by accident in the big robo war. You know, there's all these things that could happen which come from science fiction, but they're not inevitable. And actually, you know, if, if you're not able to stay because of the experiences you have, there's a new generation that can come up, that can come together. So we work a lot on cohorts of young women coming through together. And when they face those issues and face those problems, you know, they're, they're, they're built differently. And, it's, and I think it's something we see so much of our STEMETs and our LUM who you know, will come through programs, they'll be on a mentoring program, they'll gain these certifications, they'll come along to the panel, they'll go and work at, you know, such and such company, and they'll drop me a note, and they'll be like, hey, Emery, 
So I stopped working at that company, I quit being at that company, but I've started my own company and this is the funding we're going to do. And I just wanted your advice on, should we focus on this or focus on that? And I'm always like, hang on a second, you've left? <laughs> Let's rewind. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't matter. And it's one of those things that I think I genuinely have seen a generation ago, it would have been, no, I left because that wasn't working for me. It wasn't serving me. And and it's like there's there was no alternative, or it didn't seem like there were alternatives. Whereas this new generation know they have the, the value, they know they can have alternatives, and if not, they can create those alternatives. This is a tool I can use. And so whether the industry likes it or not, I'm going to come here. I'm going to thrive, and I'm going to use this STEM and this STEAM as tools to do what the adults didn't do. And I think that's what. I love so much about what we're doing at Stemets is building that network, building that community, empowering them with opportunities and really shifting their norms in a way that, you know, it's, it's a ticking, it's, it's a, you know, it's the countdown, right, to the Stemets legacy. It's the countdown to them being the CEOs, being the COOs, having alternate industries that they kind of spin up out of thin air um, with the tech industry having to grapple to keep up with these Stemets who, you know, are no longer Stemets at this point, they're women in STEM, coming through and really changing things up and taking control, which is the the title of the book. Yeah. And if not now, when? Because, you know, um, McKinsey's done a lot of work um, on the future of work, on automation, on and also on the very unequal um, prospects that that uh, entails for um, women those on low incomes, anybody with low skills. So this is the time if you're going to empower uh, women and young girls to thrive in this new world, this is the time to do it. 100%. And I'm, I'm a trustee at the Institute for the Future of Work. And I know there's definitely kind of big overlaps in, in bits that we've, that we've all been working on in this space. I think there's been so much more that's been accelerated during the pandemic, that actually, this was always going to be the time. But I think it's been a really, it's something that it's partly why I'm involved with the Institute where, you know, when we talk about the future of work, these are the people that will be in that future. And so I'm really, really conscious of they will need the skills, but the industry and the, the you know, the workplace also needs to evolve so that then it can hold them, it can carry them, it can satisfy them, it can actually have people in that workplace. Um, and and I think there's a lot of trends that we did have and things that if we're not careful actually roll out of the pandemic where, you know, not having flexibility or not being able to, you know, take into account the social context in which technologies are applied, or even, you know, with the Institute, looking at this notion that, because there's so much work, you know, this is this is almost in its infancy, right? This whole field of us really concentrating on what this looks like in the future of work. You know, at the moment, we're looking at the individual level, but above that, there's what that means for the company and the way the company can operate, the way the company can evolve, the way the company can serve its clients and work with its supply chain and the rest of it. But even more so, again, no company is an island, right? So you're also part of the society, you're part of the economy, you're part of wider. And, you know, if even if it's just the idea that the gig economy has come out of, the, the, of certain companies operating in a particular way, it doesn't have to be negative again, right? There are other things that we can do that we can evolve out of that consideration for the individual, consideration at the firm level, and then consideration at the societal level to say, okay, cool. The future of work is so linked to the future of life, the future of socializing, the future of spending, the future of retail, the future of all these other spin out things that, again, we need to have different types of people feeding into this, making these decisions with the checks and balances, with the audits, with the norms, again, that we're setting so that we don't multiply up 
you know, the the poor decisions that are made now, because that's that's basically what the technology is good at doing, right? It's good at repeating, which is, again, the, that little, little purple riding hood. It would have been really good at distributing little purple riding hood. And it's like, there's actually poor decisions we make in hiring, poor decisions we make with recruiting, poor decisions we make with workforce management. Do we really want to multiply those up? <laughs> and again, create that Terminator 2 scenario inadvertently? Or do we want to be measured? Do we want to be honest with ourselves as technologists? Which I don't think enough technologists are honest or are humble enough to say, yes, this is a powerful tool, but just because we understand the tool does not mean we understand its applications or the implications of it in its entirety. And I think that's the power of something like Steam, where we're able to value different skill sets, different disciplines, different perspectives, and then build something that then is additive and does better rather than something that basically repeats the past. And let's be honest... You know, for some people, the, the past was great. For a lot of people, the past was not great. And so actually, that's not really where we, where we want to start with in building the future. In, in your book, you you, cut, you you have some really good illustrations of the bias in algorithms. And I just wondered if you could share a couple of those, because they were very arresting. Yeah, so I mean, and quite a few of these, I think the ones you're referring to, quite a few of them have come from the work that we've done at Institute for Future of Work. So there's whether it's biases in job adverts and... You know, often, you know, when we talk about bias, there's almost two levels of bias, right? There's the technical bias that comes in because of, you know, no, what what is a fact? What is a statistic, right? This, this is the thing, dumb statistics, right? And so there's, there's bias that comes in because when that statistic was collected, often it's not really, it wasn't with your algorithm or your technology in mind that that statistic was, was collected. And so there's bias that comes in from just data collection and statistics and, and all of that in itself, but also bias in terms of the why you're doing something and the context and who has asked for it to happen. And so there's going to be bias if it's the police that's asking for it versus, I don't know, a different activism a group that's asked for this particular piece of technology. And so in the book and um, from the Institute for Future of Work, our kind of machine learning uh, case studies uh, papers that we've, we've worked on, there's three examples that I kind of pull out. One is around job adverts. And this is this notion, this idea that when you're advertising for a job, um, especially in days like this, we're, we're more, we're, we've got slightly better at understanding, you know, the, the wording in the job advert, you know, for example, is a, is a big lead on who applies or where it gets shown is also very important on who applies. And so there was one algorithm, well, social media, actually advertising algorithm that was used by a company who know that they couldn't contravene the Equalities Act and so couldn't choose gender and um, ethnicity and all these other things as part of the criteria, but they could choose, and this was pre-pandemic days, of course, you know, location, radius, and you know other other kind of factors of success that they that they wanted to put on this job advert they then put this job advert out via the social media network which used its own algorithm to decide which users to show this job to and so what the social media platform had as success and what the potential employer had as success didn't quite fully match up which meant that the job ended up being shown to a particular gender, a particular age, you know, all the things that would have been the protected characteristics, but then also ran counter to what they were trying to do with that job with getting the most people as possible to be able to see it so they can get different types of candidates and hopefully the best candidates across any kind of demographic to then apply for the job and the role. So that's one example. Second example is around hiring. And this was another one where I say we, we, it's the statistics and it's the intent and it's the purpose, it's the purpose and, and the bias that you have in implementing these technologies. But they took um, their own definition of success at this organisation and they looked across the people that are already in the organization. They looked at their social media profiles. They took all this other kind of data that they crunched. And they essentially said to the algorithm, this is what successful ca candidates look like. They looked, they used customer reviews as well, words that were used in customer reviews. 
Um, and so fed that into the algorithm. And again, this algorithm kind of basically didn't refer any women through for the hiring process because the definition of success was incredibly male. And whether that was in the customer reviews, whether that was what was in internal performance reviews, whether that was the makeup of the organization, it meant that statistically, we did, it, you know, the algorithm couldn't tell what a successful woman looked like because it hadn't seen one already. That's not that's not, not part of his data sets or his data points. And so no women were hired for that. And the final example is workplace management. And this is the one where, you know, again, we have to we have to be really mindful about intentions versus the data. And so this was a retail example. A company had brought in an algorithm to help them manage the workforce, pick shifts, pick promotions, pick pay. And they took this data from, you know, they, they looked at workplace chat. They tracked where people were on the shop floor at what time of the day. They looked at facial recognition to, you know, see sentiment and the rest of it. And this ended up, you know, this algorithm ended up kind of suggesting you know, again, having these kind of inequalities reflected again in the pay of people, the promotion of people, the way that shifts were allocated. But, you know, when we looked a little bit closer at kind of what had been pitched and what was what the software was sold in to be able to do, it was kind of like, you know, we want to pay people as little as possible to make to not let them leave. And like, if that's how you're deciding pay, that's not going to be fair. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of things we have around pay, especially where you know in the UK we have gender gender pay uh, reporting that we know there's a gap and so actually that's probably not really how you want to be optimizing your technology if that's really something you know is now law it's been law since the 60s but it's also very highly regulated and we all now have to report it I can't blame the statistics on that you can't blame the technology really on that you can blame your assumptions, what you wanted, your measures of success for your algorithm. And so there's there's all these things. And, and that's just those three use cases across three workplaces. When we then magnify that up and all the other things that happen around rest- restricting, rating, recommending, right, allocating, all the other things that we get algorithms to do, you then end up multiplying up and seeing, goodness, there's quite a lot to unpick here where... When we talk about bias of algorithms, that's a really big heading for quite a lot of things that technologists need to think about, that senior leaders need to think about, that workers need to be part of the decision, part of the process. How do we get ourselves to that point where we've got that basic digital literacy, where we're able to then, because, you know, these, these algorithms are making really big decisions that really affect big parts of people's lives. And it's the stakes are very, very high for us to get this right. I just wanted you to share some stories about your STEMET graduates, your babies gone off into the world. And I I just wanted to, you know, without naming names, I'd just love to hear a couple of wonderful success stories. We've got so many. I mean, but I think when we look at the alum, you know, there's there's folks who have ended up, um, you know, one example of a young person who was on one of our programs back in 2014, actually, who now has ended up graduating from university, did a, an engineering uh, degree at Warwick. And um, normally it's kind of four years. And, you know, she'd, she'd been along to loads of events. She'd been part of our, we had a startup incubator, incubator as well that she was part of. You know, she's been on stages. She speaks all over the world now as well around engineering and the rest that she does. Um, re- who reached out to me and so kind of said, okay, Amber, I've got this quandary. I'm in my third year of my, my engineering degree. I've just done my placement year. I'm supposed to go back and finish my master's. But, you know, you brought me along to this Institute for Future of Work workshop that was going on because I, I like to kind of connect the dots with a lot of the work that I do. And she said, I met this policy people and, you know, they've stayed in touch. And actually, they're offering me this job to head up, you know, look after science policy 
at, you know, think tank X, Y, and Z. And, you know, what do I do? And and it's so funny because it's like, yeah, actually, it's a really big question, isn't it? Because we talk so much about STEM, but actually STEM policy, of course, is part of that. And you'd think I'd say, go and finish your master's. You have to finish your master's. You know, my parents probably would have said finish your master's. But it's like, actually, if you finish your master's, I mean, you could also have this job at the end because you're definitely qualified to do it now as you would. But why can't you go ahead and, and do that? And so that's what she now does. She heads up policy at this organization with her engineering degree, all the other work that she's done with us, all the other work she's done outside of us. And this is a real powerhouse. I always say, you know, one day one day we're all going to work for her because <laughs> we will. She'll be prime minister. She'll run the country. I'm, I'm sure of it. Um, but it's people like that or whether it's younger people or other people who... Um, have gone on, like I said, the, the, the young person that we work with who, you know, went through one of our mentoring programs, ended up working at one of our employer, our partner employers, ended up actually saying, do you know what, I'm going to start my own thing. And here's all the reasons I'm going to start my own thing. She's now running a VR um, startup based off the experiences she had with her grandfather who had, uh, I think, dementia. And so there's elements of what she's doing that she's taken from her own personal perspective that she's using to kind of work on that. Um, you know, so many of them. There was another young person who, again, I was there the day that she decided not to... Um, her, her parents had really wanted her to do to do medicine. I mean, as most people, right, it's, it's a good field. You know, nothing at all against medic and doctor, medics and doctors. Of course, it's part of STEM. But it's the one where, you know, we don't quite have the underrepresentation like we do in the rest of STEM. So I was there the morning she decided, I'm not going to go to university. I'm actually going to go into this tech thing. I don't have to be a doctor to help people. And so she uh, ended up doing an apprenticeship, and working her way up in, uh, again, another tech company and, uh, you know, working really well, building her career. And so she was like, you know what, I really want to give back to the organization that helped me get to where I am today. And so she worked with her internal teams to get that company to come on and be a partner of ours. We then run school trips, different events with them. And she turns up and she's like, you know what, there was a time I was sat in your seat. (laughs) And here I am, you know, I'm going to speak to you for half an hour and then I need to go off and do things because I've, you know, I've got, I've got real work in this company. And and if I'm not there, it doesn't happen. (laughs) And I think that's, that for me is the real example of what success and what our legacy looks like. Like I said, these are young people, these are people, these are industry, these are professionals who are going in and their success is not just on them and how high they climb, but it's on who they're bringing up with them. And that's the kind of legacy that I'm proud to be able to look back on, to be able to see and to know year on year on year, there are young people that are coming through the opening opportunities. Final example I'll give. So we've had a couple hundred young people since um, just before the pandemic. So we did two pilots in the pandemic. Pandemic wasn't going to stop us. So we did it completely virtually in the summer of 2020 and again in 2021. Um, and one of them had ended up on the program learning agile with us. And so she stayed on with the with the qualification provider, again, joined an apprenticeship with them and has ended up being the youngest agile scrum master in the world, working again across lots of different projects, working coaching teams who are much, 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 much older than her. But her again, being able to hold her own because, again, she's got she's had that formative experience that she knows what is possible. She knows that there's value that she brings um, and she knows her stuff. <laughs> you know, let's be honest. Just tell me what a scrum master is. Sorry, a scrum master is someone. So agile is a new way of build, of working through technology projects. So it used to be you built a tech project, like you built a house, maybe you re- did the plans, you did all of it. And at the end, you'd look back and see what it's like, whereas technology is not quite a house. And so it means that you build iteratively. And so there's a whole framework of ways to run these projects and different elements of it. And so a scrum is one of the kind of almost loops that you have every two de- two weeks, I think it is, that you then are the Scrum Master. So you look after that two weeks, the organisation of what's going on. It's almost like project management, but the, anyone that's listening and knows what Agile is will be 
wincing a little bit. It's not project management, it's product management. Um, but that's what she does. So she's in, she's in control for that particular tech company in terms of how they work through and how they build out their tech product. Yeah. Love that. Love that. So um, we're, we're getting towards the end. Um, so I wanted to ask what's next for you and what's next for STEMETS? What's the, what's the plan? Our big thing at the moment is pushing for uh, it's pushing for for a bigger and a higher level societal shift in this social norm. And so there's lots of programs that we run. There's lots of work that we do with teachers, with parents, with careers leaders and the rest of it. And so we're scaling that up as much as is possible. But I think the other big thing that we're really, really working very hard on is, you know, it's policy isn't, isn't the answer. It's not the silver bullet. But how do we influence and change the social norm using policy, using white papers, using all kinds of different levers for us to take the things that we know are very normal estimates and allow those to be society-wide, education-wide, you know, norm-wide things that are done. Um, and so we've started, we actually have just come to the end of a four-year project with the Institute of Education, funded by the Wellcome Trust and the National Science Foundation, um, looking at equity and um, equitable practice in STEM outreach and kind of youth justice-oriented um, approaches. And that's kind of kick-started a load of work for us in terms of, there are a lot of things that we do that are codified as part of the STEMETS way of working that actually could work industry you know nation education system wide and so trying to pull some of those levers and leverage that influence so that we don't have to exist and i think ultimately that's what i'm aiming for i don't i don't want to still be doing this in you know x years i still don't want to, i don't want to still be doing this i almost don't put a number on it but you know you're, you're working for your own obsolescence exactly that's what we're that's what we're heading for we want to be obsolete if you're creating resources have female role models it shouldn't just be dead white guys with beards which is fine. Like we've got a lot of those resources already, but there's so many women, whether it's Dr. Gladys West with the with the, the, the GPS, whether it's Hedy Lamar with frequency hopping spread spectrum technology, which is why we have Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, whether it's Stephanie Quolek, who is the reason that we have Kevlar. Like there's all the there's a, such a rich history that if we were able to bake that into so much more, quite a lot of the confidence issues, quite a lot of the, you know, the issues that we end up seeing not knowing what success looks like and only having one vision of success, a lot of that would disappear and would go. If we were had these names on the tip, we should thank Hedy every time we're able to connect to Wi-Fi, right? Imagine having that on the tip of your tongue. No one needs to tell you that women do tech or women do STEM because you're on your Wi-Fi because of one. And so I think, it's, it, you know, there's all these small, small things that when you add up, make a really big change, make a really big difference. And that's what the science and tech, that's what the STEAM world the stem world really needs and so that's what we're going for next Obs obsolescence we sometimes like to um end these podcasts with some rapid fire questions and quick answers so you mentioned food what's your favorite food oh gosh this flips at the moment it's fen noodles biang biang noodles which i make i make them from scratch i love i love it it's one of my favorite things to eat so there we go that's my fave what's your favorite thing to do outside of work Again, this changes. I mean, watching, I do watch a lot of television, a lot of, like, you wouldn't believe, people don't believe how much TV I watch. At the moment, though, I spend a lot of time in Animal Crossing on the Nintendo, which I don't know if that says a lot about <laughs> me trying to escape to an island where I can just build houses and plant things and just, you know, strike, look for iron and clay and, you know, build things from raw materials. That's what I spend a lot of my time doing in the evenings. <laughs> What's on your bucket list? Oh, I want to learn Punjabi. 
languages were such a big thing for me growing up. I learned so I learned so many, I enjoyed collecting languages and just learning grammar. And you learn so much of the history of a people as well through their language. And so Punjabi is next on my bucket list. And finally, um, if you had one piece of advice for listeners of this podcast, what would it be? So the, the one piece of advice is that it's, I'm going to put two in one, if that's if that's OK. One is to have a growth mindset about anything technical. And I talk about this a little bit in the book as well, but... You, you can't be or you won't be or as much as it's nice to say you want to be the expert in X, especially if that thing is technical, it's going to keep evolving. And so actually you, you don't want to be the expert. You just want to know more than you did yesterday, more than you did last month and more than you did last year. So having a growth mindset is fantastic. And that's much easier to do when you're part of a learning tribe. Finding a learning tribe that you can apply that growth mindset and learn from as you learn enriches your learning so much. And that's the way we're all going to grow and maintain this technical and this digital literacy to ensure that it's not just the computer scientists controlling what happens next. It's something we can all do collectively. So that's my two in two in one, two for one on advice there. Democratising technology so that none of us get left out. That's exactly what it is. None of us get left out and all of us have some sense of agency in what happens next. Because I think that's what is missing at the moment in such a big way that you, it's almost like I can, you know, I can see it's that kind of, when you see a car crash happen in slow motion, right? Or just before it happens, it's like, no, before it happens, I'm just gonna, you know, just no. It <laughs> shouldn't just, having a de- computer science degree should not be a prerequisite for being one of the only people in control of what happens next. And so, yeah, so it's about democratizing. It's about giving folks agency so we can make collective decisions about what happens next rather than it being that kind of technical power race, if we can call it race to the, I'm going to call it the bottom, race to the dystopia, yeah. (laughs) Race to the dystopia. Well, on that note, Anne-Marie, it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.